as, as Avril said, it is, a, it is a great joy for us um, to be here. It feels like coming home, which is really lovely. Um, to begin, I just wanted to share two quick stories with you. The first is, from, uh, a, mo- is, is, is a moment from just over 10 weeks ago, um, our, uh, the day that our daughter Anna was born. Uh, in fact, it was about an hour after she was born. And there is my beautiful new baby girl. She's quiet and calm, thankfully. Um, her head is laid down against Avril and her eyes are looking up to her. Um, and we hold up, we, put, we pull up the phone, we hold it up to, um, we hold it up to her um, and we FaceTime our little boy, Caleb, who's staying at Avril's parents' place. And I, as, the, as the call connects, I see this massive smile on his face. And he looks at his baby sister and he says, Hello! Hello, baby! Hello, baby Anna! You're my little sister. So sweet, so sweet. Um, the second story is from a few days ago. Um, this is, uh, Caleb was just about to walk past me and then he quickly locks eyes with me. And then he runs over and he gives me a massive hug. And I go, oh, that's nice. That's very sweet. Um, He walks off a little way and then looks back over his shoulder. Eye contact again. And he runs back and gives me another enormous hug. Again, so, so very sweet. Um, Whether they they are big things or small things, there are things that just make your heart sing, aren't there? When you watch the Matildas make the World Cup semis, when you hear a loved one pull into your driveway, when your barista calls your coffee order is ready, <laughs> there are things big and small that just make our hearts sing, aren't there? Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. I wonder where that statement sits in your heart. Where does the thought of seeing old and new voices praising God sit in your heart? In Psalm 96, the psalmist is assembling an imaginary choir of immense proportions. All people, every man, woman and child, so great is the song that he seeks to conduct that he captures all of creation in its performance. Every brook is a soprano, every mountain is a tenor, the psalmist provides a picture of the universal praise of God. Great is the Lord, he says, and most worthy of praise. As the psalmist casts this enormous musical vision, what he's wanting to do is bring our hearts with him. That is, he wants us to capture his passion. He wants us to tune our hearts to his longings to desire with him for the universal praise of our God. Um, You'll likely know that the Psalms are a wonderful and rich part of Scripture for us, um, given in order to teach us not just how to think think as followers of the Lord Jesus, but also how to feel as followers of the Lord Jesus. The Psalms, with their poetry, engage our hearts. They pluck our desires, and this psalm in particular tugs at our hearts and says, boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if the world knew Jesus? Wouldn't it just make your heart sing if all of Springwood knew the Lord Jesus? 
if all of the Blue Mountains knew Jesus, wouldn't it be just the best thing that could happen if your neighbours, your friends, your family knew Jesus? This psalm tunes our hearts for mission, makes us think of a world that knows our great God and consider just how wonderful it would be to see them joining us in praising him. Well, as we come to consider this psalm, um, would you pray with me that God would help us to listen? Let's pray. Father, open our hearts as we open your words. Would you challenge with your word? As you, would you challenge us, refresh us and humble us? Grow us to know and serve your son that we might glorify him. Amen. Uh, We're going to look at this psalm in two different parts. The first part being uh, the God who deserves the praise of the world. And the second part being the world that wants to praise God. So the world that deserves the praise of our God. And secondly, the world who wants to praise God. Well, look down with me if you've got your Bibles open. And I do encourage you to have your Bibles open in front of you. Look down with me at verse 1 where it says, Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and praise his name. I wonder if you picked up that repeated word, sing, sing, sing. Psalm 96 is a call to worship. It's an urging to sing. It's a calling to sing a new song. Now, new songs, you might know, new songs are sung across the Bible. Nine times that phrase new song uh, appears in the Bible. And every time it appears, it appears in the context of a great salvation. So after Israel crosses the Red Sea, Moses and the people sing a new song celebrating God's great deliverance of them from slavery. And then at the other end of the Bible, in Revelation, uh, the people sing a new song as the lamb who looks slain appears to finally fulfill God's plans, bringing those who've been saved in him around the throne room of God. New songs signal that God has done something remarkable, something that has changed everything for those who now sing it. New songs come from mouths attached to minds full of gratitude and wonder that God has done something wonderful for them. Now, we have much to praise God for, don't we? The wonders of his wisdom in creation, the great blessings that he provides for us, the depths of his love in redemption. We have much that rightly stirs our hearts to longing that not just our tongue, but every tongue be filled with saying how wonderful he is. What if you know that great hymn or song, I I have decided to follow Jesus? I have just—I won't sing it for you. That's that, nobody wants that. Um, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Um, it was actually at an SBC young adults camp in 2012 um, that I remember singing that song um, with tears down my face, struck afresh with the wonders of God's mercy and grace to a sinner like me. There's much about God, our God, that gives us reason for song, isn't there? And there's probably many moments that you can, you can think of and look to where songs have been a great and wonderful expression for you of those, that gratitude, that wonder, that awe that you have at God for what he has done. But I wonder if you noticed who, has, who is called to sing this song. Who is called to sing this song? It's a bit hard to miss, actually. It's right there in verse 1. Sing to the Lord. Who? All the earth. 
Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Now, the psalm was written by Israel, but its call extends far beyond them. The psalm isn't summoning just Israel to sing to the Lord. It's summoning the whole world. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Verse 7 calls on all families of the nations. And verse 13 even draws in all of creation to sing, worship and rejoice in the Lord. Now, there is a strange dynamic that's going on in this psalm. And I think it'll pay off if you listen very carefully to it. That is that the psalm is addressed to the whole world, to all of creation. Sing to the Lord all the earth. It's addressed to all the world. But the psalm wasn't sung to all the earth. The psalm wasn't sung to the nations. Now, what do I mean by that? There's one place in the Bible that we know this psalm was sung in Israel's history, one occasion that it was sung at. Um, it comes, we, we read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And it's the moment when the ark of God is brought finally into Jerusalem and placed in the tabernacle. If you, know, if you remember that event, it's a happy day. There's that great procession, the great parade. David's there leading the procession. He's dancing all the way with joy as the ark, which represents God's presence, God's blessing, finally brought and settled in the city. On that day, we're told they sing a new song. They sing this psalm as a thanksgiving. Sing to the Lord a new song, they said. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Now, the only problem was the whole world, the earth, wasn't with them at that time. In fact, this was a celebration by Israel, for Israel, with only Israelites invited. When Israel sung this song, the nations of the world weren't in the room. Israel sung to Israel a song addressed to the world. That's a bit weird, isn't it? It's a bit of a strange dynamic. But I think it makes sense as a song sung by people not content to praise God alone. That's not enough. When they look around, when they look at each other, they say, this isn't enough. Our praise isn't enough to recognise just how great our God is, just how great the salvation he's given us is. This is, this is the song of people who say, I want no empty pew. I want this place jammed full. I want every place jammed full with people praising our God because God deserves the praise of every mouth that he made. God deserves the praise of every nation. He deserves the praise of the whole world. This song is a G-up. You know what I mean by a G-up? Like a, like a, like a hype-up. It's, a, it's a, like a, in, this, this infectious enthusiasm, a building of energy together, an encouragement of one another um, that this God that we follow, that this God shouldn't just get our praise, that this God is so impressive, what he's done for us is so good that he is worthy to be praised by the whole world as well. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. That's this song, right? It's that longing, oh, for every tongue of every person of every nation to sing to my God because he deserves it. That's this psalm. It's the imaginations of a congregation gone wild with the wondrous thought of a world praising the God who deserves it. Friends, I wonder where does that longing sit in your heart? When you look around this room, 
Are you discontented? As you think of a world filled with billions of people who don't know the salvation of our Lord Jesus, when you think of the hundreds of millions of people who will go their whole lives without meeting a Christian, are you discontent? What is our heart for Springwood? What is our heart for the Blue Mountains? What is our longing for the world? What do we want for our unbelieving children or partners or friends or neighbours? Doesn't God deserve their praise? Um, I've had the privilege of leading a few friends to the Lord Jesus um, over the last few years. Nothing particularly special in that process. Just praying for them, offering to read the Bible with them, witnessing God's work as he met them in his word. Um, Can I tell you that seeing these friends join me in church, join with me in singing with joy about our salvation that I know they found in him, it's just awesome. It's a moment really to make your heart sing. But can I tell you that even in that moment of joy, Psalm 96 is challenging me. Because Psalm 96 tells me that the cause of my joy in that moment, the thing that ought to make my heart sing is not to be first because of the salvation of one of my friends, as wonderful and amazing as that is, and cause for joy as that might be. But it's not first about them, is it? Rather, it is first about God. What ought to make my heart sing more than anything in that moment is that from the mouth of another one that God made and God loves, he is receiving the praise that he deserves. What is it that motivates us to mission, to to speaking the gospel, to living out the gospel in our lives? so that God might receive the praise that he deserves. So after all, what's the alternative? Verses 4 and 5, the gods that the world currently offer their praise to, the ones who receive their offerings of time and talent and treasures, they're nothing but idols. The gods the world trusts in are idols. That word there in Psalm 96 means, literally means nothing. The things that, these, that, that the world follows, the things that they give of themselves to are nothings, non-entities, futile things. They do nothing, they have nothing, powerless next to the God all-powerful. Only one God is worthy of praise. Only one God made the heavens. Only one God has splendour and majesty, strength and honour going before him and around him. I think of it when I, when I read this verse, I think of um, like the president and there's this big motorcade with all the lights. And, you know, when you, when you see, the, when you see the, the, the motorcade, you can't help but, you know, just be, dis- be distracted by this amazing display that's going on. Um, this, is, this is the idea. God, God in all his greatness, attended by splendour and majesty, strength and honour all around him demonstrating that this God ought to receive the praise of the world, that all people from verse 8 ought ascribe to him the glory due his name. I wonder how often that you've prayed that prayer that we were so wonderfully led by by, our, by the children um, this morning. Um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That request, that first request, hallowed be your name, it's the, same, it's the same desire that's behind that request that sits behind this psalm. That desire that the world would hallow our God. 
that they would honour him and acknowledge him as they ought. Well, how will people be drawn to praise him? With verse 2 comes the call to proclaim his salvation day after day. That is, declare his glory among the nations. It's like the psalmist has said, if we want the whole world to praise our God, then I guess we're going to go, have to go and get them. If God deserves the praise of all the earth, then we can't keep his salvation a secret. How is it that people will be drawn to praise our God? Well, only if we tell, people, tell the world what he's done. God's goodness, God's character is known in what he's done. His glory is known in the acts of his salvation, in his marvellous deeds. Only by speaking about them can we draw people into the praise of our God. Those who sing the song of Psalm 96, those who long with the psalmist for, the, for God to receive the praise of the world, long to do this work of proclamation day after day among the people of their nation, among the people of all nations, so that they might draw more and more people into the praise of the God who deserve it, deserves it. Friends, God deserves the praise of the world. And fundamentally, that's what motivates us to consider heading off to places like Madagascar. That's what motivates all of us, I hope, to send maybe us and others, um, um, other mission partners and, and others that you, ministry, mission partners that you know of, um, motivates us to send them with great enthusiasm. It's what motivates us to speak to our friends and our family about our great God and King. Whether we're meeting the nations or whether we're meeting our neighbours, we do it from hearts that are tuned to discontent that our God is not receiving their praise. Tuned to hearts that know that God deserves their praise, that God deserves the praise of the world. That's the first point today. The first thing that this psalm shows us, encourages us, challenges us in. The second is that the world actually wants to worship God. I wonder if that, that line surprises you. It certainly can surprise us in our attempts often to speak the gospel to our friends and family, um, to think that, the, that they actually want to know and worship our God. Um, I wonder if you asked any person on the street, what do you want most in life? If you ask your friends or your family or neighbours who don't believe in God, um, what, do you, what do they want more than anything? Um, what do you think they might say? might even make that non-rhetorical, if that's okay. Um, what do you think they might say if you ask them, what do you want most in the world? Feel free to call it out. Money, yes, and there was another one. A house, yes, possession, yep, security even. Yeah. Comfort, yes. Yes. Happiness, that's a big one, isn't it? A good job, maybe one more. Dream job, health, yeah, that's right, that's right. So many things that the world seems to suggest that it wants. Well, this psalm says that God really is the source of so much that the world wants. I mean, there's salvation and rescue in verse 2. There's happiness in verses 11 and 12. And in verse 5, there's even fulfilment, a very modern pursuit, fulfilment found in the move from empty nothing idols to the worship of the God who made the heavens. Um, But this psalm focuses in on two things. Two things that I think the world wants more than anything else, if they were really honest. Two things that the world wants more than anything else at the moment. And those things, I think, are stability and justice. 
stability and justice. And both of those come in verse 10. If you have a look there in verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Now that statement, the Lord reigns, is not just a statement about God being sovereign today. It's actually a phrase that looks forward, that anticipates something new, something coming. That is the news that God's kingdom is coming in its fullness. The Lord reigns. When will it end? That's a, that's a question that we heard a lot during the COVID years, isn't it? When will it end? Um, it's a question that we hear now as we look at conflicts that are ongoing in Europe, when we look at poverty and corruption ongoing across Africa, when we hear of floods in Libya so quickly after earthquakes in Morocco. Even, and, and even as we think closer to home about things that more directly affect us, the chronic increase, increase in, the, uh, in, in petrol prices or the more acute and repeated times of bushfire and flood, when will it end? The psalm says that the God who made the heavens, he reigns. Under him, the world is firmly established. Now that phrase, the world is firmly established, it's a phrase through the Bible that's connected to God ruling over creation. Only he has the power to bring stability. Only with him restraining it can it never be moved. The promise of this psalm is the God who fixed the worlds on its foundations, who sets order to creation, that his rule will bring the stability that we long for. Now, as Avril and I contemplate heading to what locals call the poorest part of the poorest country in the world, a part of the world so afflicted by such awful, horrendous poverty, corruption, famine, disease, to know that God is coming to bring it all to an end. To know that God is coming here in Australia to establish his rule in its fullness, coming to Madagascar and across the world to establish his rule in its fullness, to establish his stability. To know that and to be able to share that is wonderful. But God promises not, promises not only stability. He promises that he will judge the peoples with equity. God will bring justice and judgment. Now, there is so much that happens in our world for which we rightly want justice. Um, before moving into ministry, I studied law. And um, after graduating, I worked for a year with the government as a paralegal um, we worked on cases that came out of the Royal Commission into institutional cases of abuse. Um, we responded to claims that were made against government schools, prisons, hospitals. Can I tell you there has been no moment in my life where I have more longed for justice than in my first week in that job. And yet the justice that we were able to give was so weak and so insufficient. In a world of so much injustice that we experience here in, in Australia, despite the, 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 the comparatively good system that we have, let alone overseas in places like Madagascar where the oppression and corruption is frankly horrifying, there is so much that makes us long for justice 
long for true justice and to be treated fairly. God is coming to judge, is the promise of this psalm. And if you look at verses 11 to 13, you see the right response to that. All creation getting excited. I mean, this, this section of the psalm is just, uh, the psalmist is really labouring the point, right? He uses um, every word in the thesaurus for rejoicing, doesn't he? Um, the heavens are rejoicing, the earth is being glad, the sea is resounding, the fields are being jubilant, the trees are singing for joy. Heavens, earth, sea, fields, everything in all of them, rejoicing, being glad, being jubilant, resounding, singing for joy. He's labouring the point because he wants to make the, he's making the point that God's coming justice brings, and sh- brings universal creation-wide joy. Creation is beside itself at the prospect of the Lord coming and coming to judge. It's interesting that justice is not the enemy of joy. It's so easy to think of the idea of God's judgment negatively. We want to avoid those sections of the Bible so often. But this psalm has no hesitation in holding joy and justice together. Creation rejoices at God's coming in righteousness and truth to judge. Now, his, his coming to judge here is, is more, isn't just the idea of him coming to punish people for wrongdoing. Though, don't get me wrong, that will happen. People will be held accountable for how they've treated God and others at his coming judgment. But God's judgment here is far richer than that. It's a judgment that involves restoration. It's a judging that will be in righteousness. It's a judging that will be according to the gracious promises that God has made to his people. A judgment that vindicates his people and sets right the universe for rejoicing. That brings a creation that has been for so long groaning under the pain of sin and judgment to this beautiful picture of rejoicing and resounding with his praise. By describing God's judgment in this way, the psalmist looks forward to to God's judgment of us in Jesus. That is a judgment that was against us, but now rests in another, a judgment that was paid in full by Jesus. And so a judgment that sets us free and restores us and brings us to rejoicing, a salvation that brings out in us a new song and a judgment that will come and a justice that will come to full fruition when Jesus returns. This is the justice that God's kingdom brings, a justice that not only deals with the evil we see and hate in the world, but a justice that restores and vindicates God's people and a justice that returns God's world to how he designed it. It's wonderful, isn't it? This is what the world truly wants. So that's Psalm 96. It's a song for Israel. It's a summons to the world. It's a summons to tune our hearts, to long for the world, to sing a new song of salvation and restoration, to sing a new song to the God and King whose reign ensures stability and justice and joy for all creation. Well, how exactly do we tune our hearts to to long to see this song on the lips of our neighbours and on the lips of the nations? Well, I actually think we need to first contend with busy, don't we? There's so much that distracts us. There's bills to pay, there's kids to raise, doctors to visit, holidays to plan, holidays to pay for, conflicts at home, um, dramas at work. It's all too easy for us to follow along in that constant stream of things in front of us 
and forget that there is a great and sovereign God who is doing something with the world and who is doing something with us. Friends, would you let your hearts be tuned by this psalm? Would you let this, would you let this psalm lift your eyes before all the things that get in the way? Would you let this psalm stoke your longings? Let it, let it remind you that we have a God who deserves the praise of the world. Would you embrace the discontent? The discontent of empty chairs, the discontent of tribes and people groups as yet unreached. Would you long with the psalmist that every nation, that every person would sing to the Lord a new song. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Would you, sit, would you sit, pray with me as we finish? Father, you are great and most worthy of praise. Would you help us to long together for the world to know and acknowledge this, that your great glory, your strength, your splendour, the marvellous works of your salvation would lead our friends and our family and our neighbours and our city and our world to worship you, the one who meets our deepest desires so fully in your son. It's in his, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.